Good morning. Sometimes I feel very confused, and um, as I try to think through messages that uh, I want to bring, one of the things that I find very helpful is when we're going through a whole book, I already know what's coming, and I can just keep moving. But uh, this week, I, I actually have three sermons that I want to to deliver to you, and I had to choose what to do, what to say, how to say it, and um, so I figured since I couldn't choose, I'd give you all three. So hope you're here for the long, the long haul. First one is actually, we are going to get to Second Thessalonians, and uh, we're in chapter 2, the uh, verse 13, but we're not going there first. We're going to go first to something that comes, which I think is really a setup for uh, that chapter, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is my first sermon for the day, beginning with verse 7. <clears throat> Paul is writing, and he speaks about visions that he had, um, things that he could not describe to us, he could not present to us. But it says this, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul's conclusion, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have no idea what trouble Paul faced. We have no idea what he's speaking about, what this thorn in the flesh is, but he calls it a thorn. And there's been wild speculation over the years as to what this might be. Some, for good reason, have said that it must have been an eye disease because of certain passages of Scripture that Paul refers to, see how large a letter I have written to you, and um, with his own hand. Um, it's possible. It could be, some have suggested it was chronic migraine headaches. Some have said an ear infection. We don't know if he suffered from malaria or from a speech impediment. We have no idea, really, and I'm glad that the Scripture is silent on that issue. Because if it were a specific issue, we would say, oh, yes, well, that's really suffering. But nobody, when I remember uh, years ago, I'll tell you this story, I probably told this before, but... My mother was very upset with me for probably wrong things that I had done. And I was taking piano lessons at the time. 
And I came home from church one Sunday and there was darkness in the car as we traveled home because of the, the cloud of uh, a broken fellowship between my mother and I. And she says, go and practice your piano. And I sat down at the piano keys and literally, the, I mean, really, the, the lesson that I was learning that week was the song, Oh, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. <laughs> nobody Knows Like Jesus. <laughs> and she burst out laughing when she heard me play it. And the re- relationship has been good ever since. <laughs> we have no idea what Paul was suffering. But we do know that it, we are certain about this. It was painful. Anybody who has had a thorn in the flesh knows how painful that is. Um, what, it, what it was, we don't know. We also know something else about it. It was of satanic origin. A messenger of Satan. And you see, Satan tries to hinder the work of God any way he can. And when a person is in the center of God's will, you can expect satanic opposition. It's going to come. Satanic opposition. I was thinking about this passage the other night, and it struck me that there is a parallel between this passage, Paul's thorn in the flesh, the story of the widow's two mites, the Thessalonian believers that we've been preaching about, and perhaps even your life. And you go, what? How does that all fit together? Well, let me explain. Here's what I see. First of all, Paul was suffering through no fault of his own. He had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing to deserve this. He was simply serving the Lord. And uh, through no fault of his own. Secondly, he did not want to suffer. How do I know that? Because he prayed three times that the Lord would remove this from him. He did not want to suffer. He prayed that the Lord would deliver him from the trial. But the Lord said something remarkable. And it's this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So bear with me as I set this up. There is glory for God when a person is healthy and well and there's sunshine and they are serving the Lord with all of their hearts. There's glory for God when a healthy, strong individual serves the Lord with all their might. But there is more glory for God when a person is suffering, facing loss, and in a weakened condition, suffering or is unhealthy and still serves the Lord with his or her utmost ability. There's more glory for God in that. I remember a woman in our church when I was growing up in Vancouver. Her name was Dorothy Sanford. Dorothy Sanford suffered from polio. And um, she had one leg that was shorter than the other. And her, you can't see it from there, but her heel on one side was about this big compared to the other leg. Just to give, so that when she stood, she stood up straight. Otherwise, with polio, with a shortened leg, she would have always been bent over. And she suffered 
her entire life. She was an older woman, probably in her 30s, when I first met her. (laughs) But she lived that way in suffering and anguish, really, as long as I knew her. Dorothy Sanford. She suffered through no fault of her own. But it was interesting to me as I grew up and I watched her. um, It was clear to me that the power of Christ rested upon her. And that her strength, or his strength I should say, was made perfect in her weakness. I know of no other person that I have ever met um, who was a greater prayer warrior than Dorothy Stanford. She had a heart uh, as big as the Grand Canyon when it came to caring for people and praying for people. And that's all she could do. But God's strength was made perfect in her weakness. She leaned heavily upon the Lord. Charles Spurgeon suffered from serious episodes of mental depression. Some of you may not know that. He suffered constantly from mental depression. And yet he was known and is known to this day. A man who lived basically a hundred years ago is known to this day as the Prince of Preachers. His sermons are in print by the millions. Not that he preached millions of sermons, but but they have been reproduced millions and millions and millions of times. And they are of tremendous impact if you read sermons by Charles Spurgeon. And yet he suffered. There's glory for God in a preacher preaching, for sure. As the Word of God goes out, and if a preacher is healthy and well and strong and vital, that's great if he's preaching the truth and the Word of God. But there is more glory for God if a man like Spurgeon, who is suffering from mental depression, can get up in the pulpit and preach the truth of God's Word. And people are affected by it. There's more glory for God than that. When he's at the end of his strength and the end of his endurance... One who feels inadequate for the task, and yet he stands and he preaches. And the Lord honors that. His strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to share some things from my heart, hopefully. (laughs) Um, Most of you know that, that Krista is going through a serious time of depression. Uh, chronic depression. It is a um, major depressive episode, as the doctors like to say. We had a discussion. So I'll, I'll let you in on our discussion this week, one of the things that we talked about. We actually talked about this passage that we're going to look at, and I see very clearly how it fits. And she, in a depressed state, anybody who is in a depression or has suffered depression knows that you think wrong thoughts. You just have wrong thinking. It's just part of the nature of depression. And as I listened to her, I began to chuckle. And she said, what's so funny? I said, you feel inadequate. You feel like you're worthless. You feel like everything you've done 
is of no value and that God will reward you for nothing. She says, that's right. I said to her, let me remind you of a verse. And I said, it talks about the character of God. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. And I said, you can look back at your life and see all the things that you have done to serve the Lord. In serving me and serving your children, you have served the Lord. You have made it easier for me to serve the saints. You have made it easier for me to study, to preach, and so on. And I said, your reward is great. But I said, you're going through something right now that I'm not going through. I'm going through it side by side with you. But I'm not going through the mental torment that you are going through right now. And there is no question in mental illness, particularly among believers, that there is a physical cause. There is a probably a chemical imbalance in the brain and, and so on. It's all part of what they say. There's a family history. I could, I could list two dozen people in her family who suffer from depression. So there's a familial um, aspect to this as well. You know, it's, it's in the genes, we could say. But there's a spiritual dimension here that is very, very clear to me as I see what she is suffering in the depression. There's a spiritual dimension. You say, well, you know, she's suffering just like other people who suffer. Do you know that I think the statistics are that 25% of all women will suffer some episode of depression in their life? 25%. That's amazing to me. Very high statistic. And as we see our bodies unwind as we approach the end times, we're going to see more and more of this. I have no doubt about it. We are devolving as a people. We are not evolving. Okay? We started off perfect. Do you remember that? In the Garden of Eden, God made them and he said, it was very good. If he were to look at us today, I don't think he'd say the same thing. Okay? We are a mess, physically, mentally, emotionally, in every way. But he still loves us. Okay? And there's coming a day when we will be perfect as believers, like the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this trouble will be gone. Anyway, back to my story. So I said to her, I said, you know... What you don't see, and, and it seems to be shining so clearly to me right now, is that you are not um, weaker than me. You're actually stronger. And here's why. I said, if I look back at your life, when you were healthy, when you were strong, you love people. You loved people in the strength of your youth. You loved people. Your children love you more than they love me. And for good reason. Okay? The people of the assembly love you more than they love me. And for good reason. Okay? You love people. And you've done that. You've loved people in your health and your strength and and in your... uh, in your youth. I said, but now you're suffering 
tormented by mental illness, and yet you still love people. Think about it. At a time when it'd be easier just to run away and hide, she still loves people. I said, more than that. I said, you have shown hospitality. I said, I don't know of anybody in the world who has allowed more people to traipse through your house. (laughs) Over 4,500 people, not even counting the saints, in the last nine years. And I said, that's not even a true count. That's just what I know. But I said, 4,500 people traipsing through your house day after day, night after night, sleeping in your bed, sleeping in, using your, your cooking utensils, using your kitchen, doing all of this stuff. I said, why? Because you love people. That's what hospitality is. That's what it means, the love of people. And I said, that's what you've done. But you did that in your strength. You did that when you were well. You did that when you were in your right mind. But you are still doing it in your depression. You are still doing it now. And I said, I said, there is more glory for God now than there was then. If you could do it with ease then, and you're doing it as a struggle now, but you're still serving the Lord, there is more glory for God now than there was then. I said, it's not that you're weaker, you're stronger because of the strength of the Lord. You give to the Lord out of the abundance of your possessions. That's great. We're commanded to. We're encouraged to in Scripture, to give generously, to give hilariously, to give in abundance. And I said, when you can do that, when you're rich, it's easy. It doesn't cost you much. But when you're poor and you still give, there's more glory for God in it. You see, that's what Paul is saying here in this passage. I have a thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Satan is trying everything he can to bring me down. But I am going to serve the Lord with my whole heart. That's what Paul is saying. It is in our weakness that the Lord's strength is seen. It is in our infirmities that the power of Christ rests upon us. That's why Paul says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, that's my first sermon for this morning. My second sermon is something like the first sermon. And it's found in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. Let's take what we have just learned in the first sermon and piece it together with the second sermon. You know, as we have said over and over again, the Thessalonians were suffering greatly. They were being persecuted. They were being attacked. There were people coming into the assembly that were undermining the truths of God's word. They were trying to get the Thessalonians to be uh, in a state of uh, confusion and discouragement and worry and all of the rest of it. That's all part of what was taking place here 
in Thessalonica. They are in a weakened state because of persecution. They have been troubled by false teachers who have caused them to fear that they missed the rapture and that they are in the tribulation. They began to believe that the tribulation that they were facing was in fact the tribulation. The seven year, they were, had already entered into the tribulation period, the seven year time of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. This was clearly the work of Satan, a messenger of Satan to buffet them. So Paul not only teaches them the truth, he does what is absolutely necessary. He gets on his knees and he prays for them. And this is where we pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. In case we didn't get that. And hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. When a believer is knocked down by circumstances in life or is oppressed by satanic opposition, it is so easy to become discouraged. And many believers who are facing situations, trials, testing, tribulation in their life just say, you know what, I'm through with this. And they just want to throw in the towel. Paul's prayer is a good pattern for us to pray for those who are discouraged, those who are being attacked, those who are in tribulation. It is also a good reminder for us. And Paul, Paul's prayer focuses on, on things we need to remember. Okay, That's what we want to look at here. What do we as believers need to remember in times of trial? So first of all, he gives thanks to God for all the saints, praying always for you. What does he give thanks for? Well, he gives thanks that we are brethren. Brethren. We read words like this and we kind of gloss over them at times, don't we? I am your brother. You are my brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. And as a family, we have a common father. And that is God, our father. God is our father. God is our father. What is his character like as a father? He is a God of great love, of great compassion, of mercy, of grace, of tender pity towards his children. He is our father. Paul gives thanks. These are things we need to remember. That we are beloved by the Lord. 
You know, at times, and this is one of Satan's tactics, is to make you discouraged, make you question whether the Lord truly loves you. You know, the Bible says this about, about our relationship with Satan. He says, we are not ignorant of his devices. He has not changed his tactics in 6,000 years. He is a liar and the father of lies. He does not know how to tell the truth. Why? There is no truth in him. And so as we begin to doubt the word of God, as we begin to doubt the character of God, we have to go back to the truth and see what God has to say. Satan is trying to undermine the truth of God's word. What did he do in the garden? Really? Has God said, you shall not eat of the fruit? You shall not surely die. That's a blatant lie. We are not ignorant of his devices. Paul prays, gives thanks to God that we are beloved by God. When a person is suffering, one of the first things that happens is Satan uses that weakness, that weakened condition, and makes them question, I wonder if God really loves me. I wonder if he really cares. You say, oh no, people don't think that way. Really? The disciples were in a boat. Jesus had said, go to the other side. They were in the center of God's will. And a storm came. And they thought they were perishing. The first thing out of their mouth is, Lord, do you not care that we perish? What happens in tribulation? What happens in trouble? First thing, we go to that. Why? And Satan uses that. Say, yeah, God really doesn't care. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this condition. Really? Paul prays and thanks God that we are beloved by God. God loves us. What is the evidence of that? Think of the cross. Get your mind back to the cross. Get your mind back to what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And don't forget the most popular verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? He loves us. Beloved of God. Beloved by the Lord. Paul thanks the Lord that we are chosen for salvation. Wow, I'm so glad we are chosen. I'm so glad it has nothing to do with me. I am so glad that it's not based on my performance. I am so glad that it has nothing to do with time. It has to do with His choice of me. His election before the foundation of the world. I am so glad that it has to do with him and not with me. You say, well, wait a minute. Don't we have to make a choice? Yes, we do. And Paul talks about that next. So it's always together. He thanks the Lord that we, are, we were sanctified by the Spirit of God. We just came out of, here's the difference class, four types of sanctification. Pre-conversion, sanctification. What is that? That the Holy Spirit of God sets us apart for salvation prior to us coming to know Him. We are set apart by God to hear the Word of God. Those of you who have, an, have a saved 
or, or in a mixed family where you have a, an unsaved spouse and a saved spouse, the scripture talks about the fact that the saved spouse sanctifies, sets apart the unsaved person for salvation. Pre-conversion, sanctification, setting us apart for salvation. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Do you remember how the Lord drew you to himself? Do you remember those days? Do you remember the events that led up? You know, I, I laugh every time I think about my salvation in a good way. I went into a, an Easter conference in Vancouver, and uh, I was as proud and cocky as anybody could ever be. I had grown up as, in a Christian home. I was convinced that God was fortunate to have me as one of his children. And I believed that if anybody did, deserved to be in heaven, it was me. And I remember thinking those thoughts as I entered into that meeting that day. And I sat down in one of the theater pew seats that they had there, quite content with my own spiritual pride, that I was on my way to heaven. And the preacher preached that Sunday. And you would think at Easter he would talk about the cross. And you would think he would preach the gospel, but he didn't. Instead, he preached a message from Second Chronicles about... The, the Jewish uh, people and their separation from God. You say, well, how would that ever bring you to salvation? I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought of it. He's talking about, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's not a gospel message. That's a message about a people who had rebelled against God and had turned their back on him and that if they repented, God would restore them as a nation. That's to do with Israel. But he didn't even preach the passage correctly. He preached it about the church and how the church had wandered away from God and needed to return. Christians needed to return back to the Lord. And there I am sitting in the pew in the back of the auditorium. And God is convicting my heart (laughs) of my own sin. I walked out of that meeting that day fearful that I would not make it to the end of the day. And his preaching had nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing. God used his word and a mixed up preacher who I love actually. And that message, it was as if it was right for me. And God used it to convict my wicked heart of its sin and need of salvation. And there, that day, I walked out of the meeting believing, I walked in believing that God was lucky to have me. And I walked out of that meeting that day believing that even God couldn't save me. That was the difference in an hour's meeting with the the preaching Really, and the man was filled with the Spirit of God. God used such an awkward message to reach my my soul, and I laugh about it. I think, wow, I never would have put that together. But the Lord knew that's exactly what I needed to hear. And ultimately, I didn't get saved that day. It was some time later. But that is the pre-conversion work of the Holy Spirit, moving us towards salvation. 
And then Paul gives thanks that we believe the truth. He's talking here, of course, of the Thessalonians. You know, so often the gospel is preached. We have classes, the stranger on the road to Emmaus. We go out and we witness. We've gone out and we've delivered tens, well, 10, 12, I don't know, Michael, you would know the, the number, uh, 10 or 12,000 copies of Ultimate Questions and Final Destiny in the Neighborhood. We have messages online. We have all kinds of ways that we've tried to reach our community with the gospel. We've preached the gospel, and I've seen people in this meeting who clearly were under conviction of sin, and they turn around and they walk out. It is not just that we were set apart from all eternity, that we were elect by God, but there comes a point in time where the gospel message must be believed. And that's what Paul is thanking the Lord for, that the Thessalonians heard that message and they did believe the gospel. And then finally, thanks that believing the gospel, which is for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to the future of our salvation. We were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin controlling us. And here Paul is referring to the fact that we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And we will be with Christ and we will be like him forever. Gone will be the days of tribulation and trouble and illness and everything else. All the trials will be distant memories and we will be with Christ and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. So these are things in our trials that we need to remember. But in our trials, there are things that we need to do. So Paul says, therefore, brethren, stand fast. This is a military term. Hold your ground. Don't give up the territory that you have gained. And it's clear from the next part of the verse that the attack is from the evil one. And it is an attack against the truth. I want you to hear the song. Some will say it's foolish. Some that it's absurd. But still we choose to build our lives upon God's holy word. We know it's always perfect. We trust it in all things, it's holy and it's right, so whatever this life brings, we stand on what is timeless, we stand on what is true, we stand upon shame no matter what the world may do. Spoken by the Lord of all And no other 
Paul says, therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold on to the ground that you've already already uh, taken. He says also, hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. You see, the attack that we face when we are in a trial is an attack ultimately against the word of God. It's an attack against the truth of the word of God. Take a stand on the word. Jesus spoke about Satan. I, I quoted some of it earlier. He says uh, to the um, uh, religious rulers of his day, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Speaking of Satan, he says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Stand fast. Stand fast. Hold the traditions. You know, there are churches that actually teach that their traditions are equal to the Scripture. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about when he says traditions is the truth that was handed down to you from the previous generation. The truth that the apostles taught the truth that is now in its written form, in the Word of God. That's what he's talking about. The traditions. Whether in spoken form, such as through preaching and teaching of the Word of God, or through written form, such as in the Word of God. Don't give up that ground. Stand. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. You have taken Scripture to heart. You have taken Scripture to memory. And when you are in the storms of life and the rains come, the winds beat upon it, stand. And you will stand if your house is built upon the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same rain, same floods, same wind. Beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall. So in our trial, there are things that we need to know. There are things that we need to do. Stand fast and hold the truth. And in our trials, there are some things that only God can do. Verse 17 says that he, God, will comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Comfort is given by the Lord. Do you know that the Lord, his desire is to comfort you in your trials? His desire is not to punish you in your trials. It's to comfort you in your trials. I, I really was touched by this verse, uh, verse 16, to, uh, this week, as I was reading it. It says, in verse 16, it tells us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Wow, that is personal attention. Who comforts, who comes alongside and comforts us. But the same verse also tells us that it is our God and Father who comes alongside and comforts us. And then if we turn to John chapter 14 and verse 16, and we add that to this conversation, we read, and Jesus says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another 
Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so we see that God is bent on giving you comfort in your trials. Comfort that only He can give. Comfort that comes only through Him. And all three persons of the Godhead are involved and bent on comforting you in your trials, in all your tribulations. The Scripture also teaches in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no temptation, no testing that you're going through, but such as is common to man. And with the temptation, God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it, bear it. He will never give you more than you can bear. A favorite verse of mine, well, first of all, it says, God will establish you in every good word and work. It is great that the Lord comforts us in our trials, but it's much more. He gives us encouragement, courage, and strength to accomplish, our, uh, to accomplish His purposes even in our trials. And there is a verse um, in the Scripture, it said, it's twice found in the Scripture the same way. It's found uh, in Psalm 18, 29. I think it's also found in 2 Samuel. And it says this, For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I will leap over a wall. Now think about it. You are standing against a troop. An army is coming against you. But by your God. You can run against a troop. There's a wall preventing you from escape, right? By my God, I can leap over a wall. Okay? I love that verse. There's no retreat, no turning back. And in fact, in the words of the old camp song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. It doesn't matter what Satan throws at us. It doesn't matter what trials come our way. It doesn't matter the persecution, the trials, the tribulation. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's my second sermon. My third one is shorter. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. When we go through trials, we often forget that there are others who are facing trials too. Some of our brothers and sisters are facing greater trials and tribulation than we are. In a very gentle way, Paul turns the attention of the Thessalonian believers off themselves and has them lift up their eyes to see that although they are in battle themselves, there is a greater war going on, and Paul is fully engaged in that combat. So Paul seeks their help. He seeks help. What does he ask for? He asks them to use the most powerful weapon they have, and that is the weapon of prayer. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Paul says in verses 1 and 2, Pray for us. Pray that the word of the Lord may run swiftly or have free course. Paul writes in Romans 10, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, 
who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul was a preacher of the gospel. And as he went out, he was saying, Lord, pray for us that the Lord would grant the gospel to have feet to run swiftly throughout the world that others might hear and be saved. Pray that the gospel might spread quickly. Brothers and sisters, I want you, I want you to know something. Some of you may not know this. Some of you may not be aware. Some of you may not be engaged in serving the Lord or actively reaching out. We have opportunities today to put our sermons, teaching online, broadcast them through the Internet at almost no cost. There is so much um, opportunity in this generation that has never been present before, and we could use help in doing that. We have opportunities to give special gifts to those who are translating Bibles into languages of people who have never had the Bible in their own language. We have opportunities to get books like Stranger on the Road to Emmaus, gospel literature like that, translated into new languages, or to get audiobooks of the material into countries that have never before had the gospel, or it's restricted in those countries. Um, audiobooks have been used in countries where there's high levels of illiteracy. We have opportunities to fund curriculum development for evangelistic materials. We have opportunities to fund the printing of gospel literature that is ready right now, but just not printed. We have opportunities to fund translations and printing of commentaries, including Bill McDonald's um, Believer's Bible Commentary. We have opportunities to fund computer software to aid missionaries around the world in understanding new languages and moving through the process of reducing a language to print so that they might be able to share the gospel and other materials, Christian materials, with people in these countries. We are moving forward in our goal of reaching every country of the world, but there is still much land to possess. The opportunities are great. Pray that the Lord would put feet on the gospel and that it would run swiftly throughout the entire world. Pray that the Lord would release our grasping hands um, from the funds that He has given us that we might invest in eternity and in the souls of men and women. Paul prays that the word might be glorified. What does he mean by that? You know, when the word of God was preached, when the gospel was preached in Thessalonica, it had great results, didn't it? The people came to know the Lord. God was glorified in people believing the word of God that was preached. That's what he's talking about, that the word might be glorified. They heard the word. They believed the word. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's the way we should pray, that, that God would allow the word that does go out not to just sit on a shelf, but it might really impact the hearts and lives of people, that the Lord would give us fruit and that that fruit might remain, that the Lord would allow the seed of his word to fall on good soil, that it might bring forth much fruit, that the Lord would give us a harvest that yields 30-fold, 60-fold, even a 100-fold. Pray that the word might be glorified. Pray that those who preach and teach and evangelize will be preserved. Paul says 
that, that he was up against unreasonable and wicked men. I, I read a story, uh, I think it was uh, J. Vernon McGee, and he said something like this. He said, he says, you know, I, I haven't been troubled by Satanists as I preach the gospel. I haven't been persecuted by um, the mafia. It hasn't been this group and that group who has, who has hindered the work. It's been people in the church who have hindered the work more than anything else. There are people who profess the name of Christ and yet hinder the gospel and hinder sound teaching at every turn. Paul faced unreasonable and wicked people in his ministry. And so will we if we preach the truth. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. You remember the demon-possessed girl that was shouting out behind him. And you remember Demas who forsook Paul. But in contrast to the unreasonable and wicked men, Paul then turns his attention at the end of this section to the saints he loves, and he has nothing but praise for them. He says this, The faithful Lord will establish and guard you from the evil one. So we kind of have come full circle, haven't we? We started off with the thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And here Paul is saying the same thing, that the opposition that we face as believers, the trials that we endure, we could say of Job, for example, oh, he just had boils. It was just a skin condition. Poor Job. You know, anybody could have a skin condition like that. Poor Krista, she just has a mental illness. It's, it's 25% of all people, women have it, you know. Oh, well, it just, it just happens. There's a spiritual dimension in Job's illness, wasn't there? He would not have been sick had it not been for satanic opposition. But I want you to know something about that. There's something that we must understand in it. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and here's the key, and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. God is at work in spite of satanic opposition. God has not lost control when people suffer, when people are in tribulation. God is very much in control. And he can harness even the evil that is done against us to his glory and to his purposes and to his praise. And Paul knew that they were not, the Thessalonians were not only serving the Lord, they were actively doing what Paul had instructed them to do, but they would continue to do so. To, do so. to end the third sermon, I go back to the first sermon. And I end with these words of Paul. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. Are you weak this morning because of the trials and difficulties and tribulation that you're in? It's a good place to be. For when I am weak, then 
I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is without a doubt that you love us and you comfort us and you help us in every tribulation. We think of the psalmist who talks about the the tribulation that the saints go through, but the Lord delivers him from them all. We thank you, Lord, that even if a righteous man falls seven times, yet the Lord will raise him up again. We thank you that though the Thessalonians suffered tribulation, yet they were beloved of the Lord. You had not forgotten them. You had not abandoned them. The truth is always the truth. And Lord, we just pray that in the midst of tribulations, we would lift our eyes off of our own suffering, off of our own troubles, off of our own trials, and that we might recognize that in the world, tribulations will come. But Lord, you will deliver us from them all. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort, the God of all hope. We thank you that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in comforting your saints. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, our God and Father, and the Holy Spirit who was given to us as a comforter, one to come alongside and help us, and that we might also be able to comfort those who are suffering affliction with the comfort that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would lift up our eyes, that we would see fields that are white to harvest, that we would recognize that we are in a battle and that we would stand fast, we would stand firm, and that we would stand on the truth. We pray for this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Meeting is now over. Thank you.